Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is Vistos uh, Magridis. He's Associate Research Professor at the W.P. Carey School of Business, Arizona State University. He has many other accolades and initiatives. He's also a digital fellow at uh, Stanford University. And we're going to get into the details, a little bit of that, and some of his work surrounding labor. Christos, thank you for coming. Yeah, wonderful to be here. Thanks so much, Richard. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and yeah, it looks like your career path, you've engaged in many different things. So what, what's that been like? Where have your interests taken you? Any interesting thing, background you want to talk about? Yeah, well, so I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and my parents run a small business, a, a Greek restaurant. And so I kind of saw them doing a lot of different things, ranging from cooking to gardening to just like uh, getting citrus off the trees and then using it in, as ingredients in the restaurant. And I had, had a good experience in my undergraduate at Arizona State University and really focused on economics. But one of the things that I was just really deliberating about at the time was, okay, what am I uniquely kind of called to do? What am I supposed to do? Because there's so many different possible career paths and you know you got social media and all the internet out there kind of saying hey do this do that look for where there's a little bit more money and go in it whatever it might be and so i really kind of fell in love with uh, the research process and how you can use data how you can create your own data which i'll get into in maybe a, another couple minutes but how you can pull together data to not only understand an issue at its core but also tell a story that connects with people and then helps build something in the world and so what's a cool example you know, a story that involved gathering a lot of data yeah. that, you know, gave you an insightful outcome. Well, let me get two different examples. I'll choose two examples on different sides of the spectrum. So one is in the context of organizations. Right now, many organizations are grappling with how to handle remote work, how much remote work, when to remote work, what employees maybe are work, working remotely and so on. And so some of the research that I've been working on for the past couple of years, but one in paper in particular, works with a company called Payscale, where we work with their crowdsourced data. So for those that don't know, Payscale is kind of similar to Glassdoor in some respects, but they basically help individuals understand what their skills are valued in the marketplace. And so they have this large reservoir of data. And I've known them for maybe nearly a decade, I'd say. And over the pandemic, I reached out to them about doing some research on what's this connection between remote work and job satisfaction and turnover. Is it really that remote work is this amenity that everybody is kind of looking for in jobs? Or is it just correlated with other facts? And so what we found in this research, and it's still going through the peer review process and all that, but people can find the paper online. It uh, shows that the strong positive correlation between remote work and job satisfaction actually vanishes after you control for characteristics of the workplace environment. In particular, Payscale has five different measures. One is, do you feel people feel appreciated at work? Is there clarity in communication, et cetera, et cetera. And so after you control for those factors, the only slightly statistically significant relationship was between those workers who are only sometimes remote and job satisfaction. And there wasn't an association for intent to leave. So main takeaway is that when people talk about remote work as sort of a panacea for 
increasing employee engagement. It's not. It's just that in the raw data, it looks like it is just because it's correlated with other factors. And so now working with companies and then giving some guidance and advice around how do you structure your hybrid work environments. And sometimes it might be that a fully remote or a highly remote is the right thing, but it's not as if that is the lever to pull when trying to raise employee engagement. The second example that I'll give on the other side of the spectrum is thinking more about the world at a macroeconomic level instead of this micro level where you're looking at organizations. And so I've been studying religious freedom as determinants of human flourishing and how that is a precondition for many other things that we sometimes are tempted to take for granted in the world, like property rights. And so you go to some countries where property rights are really enforced. And so I I gathered data on pretty much every country in the world, and I've been a senior advisor with Gallup, and so I've worked with the Gallup World Poll data, where they have nationally representative samples of people over time since 2006 measuring well-being, and then I link that with measures of religious freedom at a country by year level, as well as measures of economic freedom, like property rights and institutional quality, and found that there was this really positive effect of religious freedom of human flourishing, independent of those other economic systems that are in place. And then follow-up work did um, further investigative what comes first? Is it that you have property rights and that gives rise to the institutions that help create religious freedom? Or is it the other way around? And long story short, kind of found it was more the other way around religious freedom gives rise to these other things. And so then, then in terms of seeing things flow into reality, it's advising organizations around um, and multinationals around how do you, how do you create, how do you create religious freedom? How do you maintain it? How do you work with government agencies? How do you manage some of the challenges that come up, especially in some countries that there, there isn't really religious freedom. So those just give two examples of how you can use data to uncover an issue. And then in many ways you can depolarize an issue because because you're just trying to understand the truth of the matter and then communicating that in accessible terms such that somebody doesn't need to have an econometric background to kind of understand the main takeaway if that makes sense. Quick question to go back to the remote work study that you've done. The socialization act of remote work, you know, is over computer or following that through technology. If you go into an office, hopefully nowadays, you know, people still talk to each other and don't just text the person in the next cubicle. Do you see that as a big factor in work satisfaction? Yeah, the short answer is yes. And I mean, so many times, uh, and so for those that are listening, I mean, you might be listening and be like, wow, I really didn't need a study to kind of show this to be true. And unfortunately, I mean, a lot of times studies come out in academia that are saying the obvious, but then this is what I would say is number one, and sometimes it's helpful to state the obvious because people get unsure about sometimes the obvious. And number two is that there is a quantitative question around, we might know qualitatively that something matters, but we don't know how much it matters or how it stacks up against other factors. So yes, this is the first answer, but then I'll give you a little bit more detail. So a project of mine, a separate project of mine with a couple uh, faculty friends at Harvard Business School, we did a randomized controlled experiment with a large multinational in Bangladesh. It's a company called BRAC. They're a humanitarian organization. They have offices across the world, but their main their headquarters is in, um, in Bangladesh. And uh, we randomized the number of days that people were coming into the office during the pandemic. And the randomization aspect is absolutely critical from a statistical perspective, because imagine if you're not randomizing that, certain people might want to come in more and other people want to come in less and their desire to come in might be correlated with other factors. It might be correlated with whether they have kids, it might be correlated with their work ethic, it might be correlated with their tenacity, curiosity, et cetera, et cetera. And so we randomized that. And what we found was that 
hybrid work was most associated with increased communication within the firm, as well as feeling that they have a better work-life balance. And so we also surveyed them to get these measures of, of work-life balance and job satisfaction, et cetera. And so anyways, main takeaway there was hybrid work seemed to be kind of the best of both worlds. And in particular, it's consistent with your your intuition that socialization and not feeling lonely are a very crucial elements of, of the workplace. You don't just go to work to have a paycheck. You go to work also to build relationships. And serious work requires trust. It requires more relationships. And it's not some commodity that you just trade like some fungible asset on the S&P 500. Well, I remember, you know, when I first started working like five years ago, well, approximately 35 years ago. Some schedules, they would change every week. And I really didn't like that because then I couldn't plan. It actually hurt my ability to socialize. So with the hybrid work model, I understand why you did the random. But, you know, once you find a sweet spot there and you go to maybe a plane schedule, I would guess that would be happiness. To go with three days and I'm off like Monday and Friday, I work from home. I'd probably, that would probably be like a really great schedule. Let's say a thousand rooms. So yeah, just to clarify, the reason randomization was usually randomization is not possible because employees, I mean, would like predictability and the employers would like predictability. And I mean, it just doesn't usually work that way. The reason it did was because this was at a time in the pandemic when that office and many offices didn't feel comfortable sending everybody in at once. And so the question was how many, not, they were kind of saying, we're only going to have this many people in the office at a given point in time, rightly or wrongly. And the question was, which people? And so so this was a beautiful, actually, this is a beautiful illustration of how social scientists or researchers can work collaboratively with companies to find areas of value creation because we came in, we randomized it, and that allowed us to learn a lot more about how their process of remote work led to changes in productivity, communication, et cetera. So all in all, I, I'm totally with you that, that workers, everybody values some predictability in their schedule and randomization was just a feature of the unique time period that we were in. Okay. What other work and research have you done in regards to labor? Interesting. Well, I'll put two other kind of thoughts on the drawing board. One is some recent work I've been doing around the arts. And the second is more generally about how people acquire or accumulate human capital. So when a labor economist talk about human capital, it is broadly refers to skill, knowledge, abilities, anything that is kind of inherent in the individual's capabilities. And there's a really open question of, okay, how do people acquire human capital? And I think we all have ideas based on our own experiences. There's models where people learn by doing. So the more time that you spend on something, the more that you accumulate human capital. There's other models that labor economists have written down where people allocate a certain amount of time to learning and a certain amount of time to working. My personal view is that they're not as fungible as that. You probably learn more just organically by doing. So number one is that there's a huge open question of how even to model human capital formation. And I am very interested in the methodological aspects as well as kind of the the empirical aspects of that. So let me pause on that point before going into the artist and say, I've been doing uh, some research around what are the implications at a macro level when you build models that take human capital seriously. So for example, what's the optimal marginal tax rate? How much should people be taxed on their labor income? How much should people be taxed on capital? These are questions that depend crucially on how we think people accumulate human capital. Because if people accumulate human capital by doing, by spending more time at work, by spending higher effort at work, then anything that creates a 
wedge between kind of the workplace and their their willingness to work and, and be present that were fully present, not just kind of sit around behind the computer, but be fully present. That also impedes the learning process. And so that impedes their ability to earn future revenue because they're less skilled, they're less capable. It impedes productivity because now the company is making less money as well. And so some of the work, some of the results that emerged out of this is that the optimal marginal tax rate is lower when you start taking human capital seriously. And moreover, that it can actually worsen inequality when you raise the marginal tax rate, because now you are causing workers to be less resilient in the labor market. So if they get fired or if there's technological change, now they have fewer skills to then pivot into a new career, a new job, and so on. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. One nuance here is anyone tried something like, uh, you know, if you work overtime, you pay no tax on it or you pay a reduced tax rate. I think instead of just paying time and a half, which just give access to the tax myth, has anyone ever proposed or I've modeled, you know, hey, if you work overtime, the tax rate gets cut in half to make you more excited and willing to time. It would be more interesting. Good question. I, the short answer is just politically that that hasn't really gone into that stage. There's some logistical issues of like, what is overtime? Because in, I mean, investment banking is like overtime over 70 hours. Is it over 60 hours a week? And so kind of coming to some consensus of what is normal versus what is overtime. In certain jobs like retail, it might be kind of clearer. But uh, yeah, the short answer is not really, although that, well, that would be an interesting extension because you might be able to incentivize that more. The other challenge that Europe has particularly faced is with the wage setting driven by unions. And so it's very, very costly terminate employees that are just, I mean, not performing or not showing up or have whatever abuses. And so having flexible labor markets is another corollary of this kind of strain of research, namely that you just want play, you want a labor market where it's easy to come have inflows and outflows. And if you have to wait like five years to be able to terminate somebody, you obviously don't want it to be uh, abused. You don't want termination to be like super easy. But on the other hand, a kind of a free market solves us in many respects because if it's a competitive market and you get fired, okay, there's another employer that you can work for. The problem is when you don't have a competitive market and there's certain areas of the economy that are less competitive than others. I mean, you think about healthcare and technology space. And I, I mean, I, I should say for all listeners that that's a debate in and of itself is, is it a competitive environment or is it not? And you can find people that kind of argue it is and others that argue it is not. But no, it's a great question. Yeah, yeah. Is the other example you were going to Yeah, the other one is looking at specific labor markets like the arts. And so I have a forthcoming paper in a journal of cultural economics. So it's, it's like the field journal that focuses on, as the title says, cultural economics and the arts. And so this was drawing on all the data from the Census Bureau specific to individuals. So they have something called the ACS, the American Community Survey. So about 20 million individuals that I observe anonymized. So don't worry, I'm not like tracking people's names or anything like that. But they have anonymized data that you can download from 2006 to 2021. And the main results, watch it too, 
two main results that I think are of interest to kind of readers, and I'm going to have a takeaway here that I think is broadly interesting for people even outside of the arts is number one, that artists in 2006 earned about 15% less than non-art than their counterparts that are not artists, even after controlling for a bunch of demographic facts. Number two, and actually that, that, that gap between artists and non-artists grew to a 30% differential by 2021. So that's number one. Number two is that the returns to schooling. So typically labor economists and people that kind of think about educational policy talk about the returns to school, that if you go to college, you're going to earn a premium. If you go to master's or PhD, you're going to earn a premium. But in fact, this is a market where that is not the case. You compare college educated via not college educated artists and the college educated actually earn 4% less. And the people with master's compared to those that just have a college degree and not the master's are at 18% less than the most that just have a college. And so you have like literally the opposite paradigm happening here. And so this begs the question, what is going on with kind of educational institutions? Why are artists or people trying to go into the arts so not able to earn? Because that's not even taking into account the debt, the, the tuition costs that many of these conservatories and colleges that give bachelors of arts and music are charging. And this is another separate interest of mine around classical music and the fine arts. And what does this mean for society? If this sector is facing convergent employment, like implosion on multiple sides, where the labor market is deteriorating, the theaters are deteriorating, there were the closures for two years, there's various things that are kind of hitting this sector. What does this mean for a civilized society to have like the arts enterprise kind of caving in on itself? And so a lot of the work that I'm devoting to is around how do you revitalize it, both from a policy standpoint, as well as from an entrepreneurial standpoint. So I don't understand from your description, what's the problem? What's the problem? The, oh, the problem is that artists are not able to earn a living uh, and it's getting worse over the past decade. 15% less, now it's 30% less. And that's probably an underestimate of the full cost well, that they face. Is that because when they put their music on platforms, platforms are paying less and less or required more list, or they pay less per listener or per engaged person? Streaming is certainly part of the equation. I think it has to be part of the equation. But you also have other aspects of the industry that are just changing. Like, I mean, opera houses, for example, are generally paying less. They've been wary of adopting innovation. So like most opera houses don't even stream. They don't offer streaming uh, services to a worldwide audience. And so it's just whoever can show up in the seats. And so even the Metropolitan Opera will have something like 50% of the seats that are just vacant on a given show. And uh, I mean, if, if anyone at a factory that was at 50% capacity, I mean, they would they would go under. You think about the car manufacturers and they are, they're trying to be at like basically 100% at all times. And if they miss like 10% uh, on a given week, that's a really big challenge for them. So I think streaming is part of it, but it's also these other factors, which ties into streaming and how or a lot of organizations haven't figured out a way to, to leverage it. And again, I apologize. There's so many different things that are going on in this sector. So we could spend hours just talking about that alone, but it's also that artists are not being trained to think entrepreneurially. So many are taught that, hey, like you are the next diva, you're going to make it. And the reality is that they don't have the talent, they don't have the capabilities, they're not going to make it. They might not even belong in the arts, but you still have colleges that keep onboarding the same number of students. And then even if they really have raw talents, even if they have put in thousands and thousands of hours of practice, they're still going into a labor market that requires them to think entrepreneurially, that requires that they know how to manage an agent if they get to the point where they need an agent, how to compute the tax rate for the country that you're going to be singing in so that you know what your disposable income is going to be instead of just the growths. So there's so many things that are now incumbent upon the individual that used to be managed by either the theater or the kind of agent. And now it's being kind of passed through. So again, 
technological forces, labor market forces, individual social changes, all of these are kind of converging together at a particular moment in time. Yeah, that's really interesting. You're right. If you're not entrepreneurial and you just hope you get picked up, well, you're going to be at the mercy of the people that pick you up on the contract and you know the stipulations, et cetera. And there's a huge talent pool and it's more visible to these people. Again, it's even more competitive than before. Exactly. When you talk about artists, have you gone into more modern day ones, you know, I don't even know if you call it an artist, but, um, you know, people that are on YouTube that, you know, have a channel, they want to build a following, et cetera. Are you pushing into new kinds of media and looking at artists and again, new kinds of media versus more traditional, let's say singer, songwriter people? Yeah. So, I mean, I think everybody has probably been exposed to our, uh, I mean, so capacity, if not at the least, uh, even if somebody never turned on YouTube, just the way that the house, your house is designed, your apartment is designed. I mean, there's architecture that requires an artist to kind of be involved in the furniture and all that. So my my focus has largely been more in classical, although, I mean, you hear stuff that's on the radio. And I mean, my personal view is that it's just really unfortunate. Some that you just look at the lyrics of some of the songs that are out there and it's like, gosh, do I, do we really want to be kind of training up a generation to be singing some of these things? So I personally big fan of the 80s, some of the 80s music uh, when I was growing up. But, but right now, I've really been captivated by these uh, incredible seminal classical musicians and you go whether it's like a Beethoven or, or I mean more recently Pavarotti and looking at the opera sector and um, one of one of the things that I'm, I'm very involved in one of my ventures with my two best friends who are leading opera singers we have a venture called Living Opera and we have a community that bands across the world and across five different continents and what we're trying to do is empower artists to be entrepreneurial and also to kind of self-produce. And so anyways, I, I think you were going to ask something, Richard. No, I think that's really cool because uh, I've been taking opera lessons for a while. Not that I'm going to be a star. It just seems like a very small community and live that doesn't seem to be much. That's really cool you're doing that. Here are you based out of? Well, I'm in Austin, Texas. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Austin and Houston are really big hubs of, of opera. The U.S. opera houses have been a little bit weirder then, I mean, you would think it's the other way around than some of the European ones recently. But no, I mean, that's it's interesting because one of the things that I, I love, I think we can all kind of learn from is when you see somebody that's really good at their craft, they might be really good programmer. They might be a really good painter. They might be a really good pilot. I mean, you name it. Whenever somebody is really good at something, that's a combination of a gifting as well as like thousands of hours of practice. And there is something to learn and just admire about that. And it can be inspirational for what you feel gifted at. And then is this kind of win-win. So anyways, that's great to hear that you're kind of taking lessons because it gives you a glimpse into how complicated it is. Like I look at a sheet of music, I have no idea how to read this and... I mean, it's like a whole new language. And uh, anyways, it just gives you a lot of appreciation, compassion, and uh, hopefully some inspiration as well. Yeah, it gives me an appreciation for the old singers and no auto-tune, no microphones. And now, come on. No, I mean, and that's one of the big differentiators between classical music and pop is that, I mean, you could be a really bad singer, somebody that just like has a bad voice, like raw, like, I, and I don't, I'm not trying to like, we're not throwing anyone under the bus, but it's like some people just like have a, a worse voice for singing. And then you also are just, I mean, you don't necessarily have the, the personality either, but then somebody comes behind and backs it and it, and it like takes off just because of how they're able to project a certain image via auto-tune and all these different tools that are out there. So it's a big difference difference and people that are classically trained and in a serious capacity it reminds me of that phrase from like dodgeball it's like if you can dodge a wrench you can dodge a ball so if you can sing classical you can, you can kind of go into a lot of different genres and 
again, not at all to knock other genres. I have great respect for other genres, and we are actively looking to mix opera with country, gospel, R&B, etc. And there's some really cool stuff that you can do there. But it's just classical is a thing of its own and a very much beautiful area. In the labor market, you know, have you taken any of these lessons back to, I don't know if your parents still operate the restaurant, but, you know, have you taken any of the lessons back there and changed how the restaurant runs, if you're able to say anything? Yeah, well, I mean, this is, I think anyone that's listening that has been around in known somebody that has a family business, it's all just very complicated because you have, uh, I mean, there's always kind of the labor issue of how do you bring new people into the fold? How do you find the right people? I mean, that's that's an entrepreneur's question. How do you build a team? It's a manager's question. How do build a team. So, I mean, right now focused uh, on, I mean, operate, like finding an operator who can come in and help build out some of these items in the restaurant, as well as modernizing the digital presence and kind of a social media strategy. So there are a lot of the principles that make for an effective business are not necessarily the principles that I, I studied from like a research point of view, because those are more macro policy, in some ways, a little bit more abstract. They can give you perspective on a particular issue, but I would have to, and then for that, I would probably need to study the restaurant industry as a specific sector, kind of like I was studying the arts. And that work that I just described around the arts certainly gives me perspective in what we're doing in Living Opera to understand, hey, there's a really big opportunity and challenge right now to educate singers and performing artists around entrepreneurship. Because, I mean, you see how, I mean, people are being thrust into the labor market without the skills. We've done some other work that, for example, less than less than 10% of colleges have any arts entrepreneurship training in them. And uh, one of the other results was that people, artists, have some business exposure. So we look at, do you have a secondary degree in business administration? Those workers, I mean, those people in the labor market that have both arts and business administration are earning more than their counterparts. So the short answer is not quite been able to map my research to my family business, but that's probably more a function of not studying the restaurant sector and looking at data there particularly. Oh, that's okay. What are some of like the top questions you're researching right now that you're burning to answer? Yeah, I mean, um, so many different things. Uh, for those that are interested in the research that I'm doing, my website is just www.christosmccrees.com. But I mean, everything really to me comes down to this intersection between how change, change defined very broadly, social, economic, political, technological affects people and from a human capital perspective. And so some of the work that I'm doing is around the economics of blockchain. How is that changing the ecosystem of artists? I mean, for anyone, how do you think about tokenizing assets, uh, whether it's a real estate asset, whether it's an intellectual property? I also teach uh, economics of blockchain class at University of Nicosia in, in Cyprus. And so, uh, I mean, remotely, and uh, I haven't actually been to Cyprus yet, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that one, one of these days. So, I mean, there's all that technology-related work that I'm, I'm interested in. And then... I, I'm excited to do more on this kind of organizational dynamics, measuring people's uh, job satisfaction, determinants of well-being. There's a big project with me. I could go on all day, so I'll just kind of end with it, one of these uh, last examples. There's a really exciting project that is being led up by two uh, dear friends and mentors, um, Byron Johnson at Baylor University, Tyler Vanderweel at Harvard, and it's called the Global Flourishing Study. The Global Flourishing Study is going to be the first longitudinal data set to answer questions around well-being 
machine-based, broadly human floor machine, and we're surveying the same people over time, over the next decade, in about like 30 different countries in partnership with Gallup. Gallup is the one that's fielding this, this survey. And so why is this really important? Well, because to date, all that we've ever had is what's called cross-sectional data, i.e. different people observed maybe in the same country, if if at all, observed over time. Now we'll be able to go back to the same person and understand how changes within their country and changes in their life have affected their well-being. And so again, it's operating kind of from a macro abstract sometimes perspective, but there are many questions that we in society and the economy are grappling with and we need answers. We need to understand what drives flourishing or determinants of beauty and the appreciation of beauty. So anyways, the GFS, the Global Flourishing Study is another thing that I'm really um, excited to continue contributing to. And it's just this intersection of technology and people and firms and how do we all work together synergistically. Okay, very good. Christos, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? So my website has kind of the portfolio around the research that I'm doing by LinkedIn. And so if you just go on LinkedIn and you just type in Christos McCready's, I'm, I'm, I'll uh, kind of pop up. I, I think that there's a couple other Greeks that are maybe named Christos McCready's, but fortunately it's not one of the, uh, like the Mitri's Papadopoulos uh, sort of Greek name. But my LinkedIn, my specific URL is uh, linkedin.com slash IN slash Christos McCready's. And it's just spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S. M-A-K-R-I-D-I-S. So feel free to just track work that way and hope that uh, today has been fruitful, enlightening, and engaging for those that are listening. Well, very good. Christos, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Appreciate your hosting it, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.